a man who was uh, very well off, a lot of money, and uh, showed up one night in his room and said to him, I just need to tell you that um, you need to get your house in order. Uh, you're going to die soon. And this man was a, was a Christian, and he's like, wow. He said, uh, can you tell me when? He said, well, I'll get back to you on that. He said, well, uh, you know, I'm very well off. Yep, I know that. He said, I, I know the old joke that there's no uh, U-Hauls behind the hearse, but I would uh, like to take some of my stuff with me. And the angel said, sorry, we don't work like that. You've got to leave it all behind. He goes, well, tell you what, could you just have a talk with God and, and see if he'd make a special exception in my case? And, and they went back and forth for a while, and angel finally agreed, I, I'll at least talk to God. I, I can't promise what he'll say, but talk with God. The guy says, I appreciate that. A couple nights later, the angel shows up in his room again, and he said, I, I had a talk with God, and he has agreed to, uh, to let you bring a little bit uh, along with you. You can bring one suitcase full of whatever. That's it, just one suitcase. It's kind of like the airlines. Uh, so the guy said, great. And they said, uh, by the way, did you find out when the departure date is? Yeah, I did. That, that's tonight. Oh, okay. Angel disappears. Guy gets his suitcase out. He goes to his safe, and he pulls out solid gold bars, fills his suitcase up with them. Sure enough, that night he dies. He goes to heaven, and there's a gate there, and somebody meets him at the gate, and he looks down at the suitcase, and, and uh, he says, you can't bring that in here. He said, oh, yeah. He said, I have special uh, arrangement with angel so-and-so. Talk to God. Said he could bring one suitcase. The guy said, well, I'm going to have to inspect it former TSA agent. And uh, so he opens the suitcase up and he looks down, looks at the guy, looks down again, he looks at the guy, he goes, you brought pavement to heaven? <laughs> Look it up, Revelation twenty-one twenty-one. <laughs> and you just think about that mindset here. I uh, I, I, heaven is my destiny and the glory of being with the Father and the Savior who died for me got all this stuff here that's going to rot get moldy, rust and I got to take this with me a number of years ago when we still had GPS's that we put in suction cups on the dashes and so forth. He used to have an annoying habit of if you go past the exit, either on purpose or by accident, some woman would go, recalculating. And you could change it to a British accident, accent and it's just as bad, worse actually. Recalculating. And now they don't do that. You ever notice I use, the, use my GPS uh, on, my, on my smartphone and they don't do that. Just says, turn around when possible. We've been talking about greed these weeks, and, and I want to talk to, kind of in this wrap up series about our sermon about recalculation. In other words, in light of what you've concluded in this first couple of weeks when we're talking about, reass, uh, about assessing whether or not there's pockets of greed in our lives, and the last couple of weeks as we've talked about new kinds of thoughts, setting our uh, thoughts on things above, not on things below, and then last week about giving money away as a hedge against greed. 
I wonder what kinds of decisions God wants you to make as a result. A number of you have been saying to me how convicting this series is, but conviction has to take us somewhere, right? What does God want you to do as a result of some of the things that he's been saying? Pastor Charlie was talking about idolatry this morning. And uh, really, I, th- I think this is probably one of the greatest areas of potential idolatry for us. Where instead of Christ being our treasure and our security, our money, our wealth, um, our retirement fund, our investments, they become our treasures and our securities. I want to look at a couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 12 that really I think are... are, are talking about, um, we're going to apply it to greed, but really could, could speak about a, a, a thousand different things in our lives that, that become anchors to us in running this life of faith before we get home to glory. Let me read uh, verses, and then we're going to pray before we dive in. <clears throat> Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, <clears throat> since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses is referring to all the people he's talked about in chapter 11. Huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of the hostility he endured from sinful people, and then you won't become weary and give up. We'll stop right there. Father God, as we kind of end our conversations about money and the things that money can buy, uh, as American Christians, I don't, I don't see how it's possible any of us could miss that this is something you want to speak to us about. We have so much, and, and we thank you for it all. We have so many possibilities, and we thank you for all of that. We have so many uh, options and Uh, prospects today and tomorrow of things to buy, of more money to save up, hedge against future disasters. And we thank you for it all. But even good things can become uh, ways in our lives in which you are crowded out. Our our confidence in you is, is, is... tempered by our confidence in other things. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us individually today. This is not, this is not our day to speak in other people's lives and say, you should do this or you should stop doing this. This is a day for us to open up our own hearts, open up our own ears, and listen to your personal message to us. I I pray that for me, and I pray for that for each of us. 
And I pray against the enemy who whispers, don't worry about this. This is not a problem for you. You give your tenth. You enjoy the good gifts that I've given. I mean that God's given you. Don't let us listen to his voice. Let us listen to yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there's a group of people that the writer to the Hebrews is talking about us learning from. Calls them witnesses. And this is a word that, in very short order in the church, became synonymous with not just people who tell other people about Jesus, but people who die for living for Christ. The word in Greek is martyrus, and you can hear the word martyr in that. And the writer here is pointing back to a group of people he's been describing in chapter 11, people like Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Rahab the prostitute and Barak and Samson, people that, um, people that went through some pretty tough stuff because of their faith in the Lord. And next week's going to be the Super Bowl. And uh, if they do like they've done other years, they, they, they're probably going to trot out the MVPs from past Super Bowls. These are the guys who've really made a name for themselves because they, they were on the winning team in the Super Bowl and, uh, and because they, they were famous for getting a ball across uh, an end zone line. Well, the people that the writer speaks about in chapter 11 were not famous for that, but famous for getting across the finish line faithfully. But it describes some horrific things that some of them went through in their lives before that happened. Some of them were tortured. Some of them were destitute. Didn't have a thing to their name. Some of them didn't have a place to live. They were homeless. Some of them went around in animal skins. And some of them died horrific deaths. It describes somebody we think was probably the prophet Isaiah who was cut into two pieces. And he's speaking about them as having run this race faithfully. And he also says that all of these people, and includes the prophets in this, is all these people were promised something, but they didn't live long enough to see the fulfillment of that promise. He's talking ultimately about Jesus Christ and the promise that was given back in Genesis 3.15 to Adam and Eve, back in uh, Genesis 12.1-3 to Abraham. I'm going to I'm going to make you into a great nation, Abraham. Abraham didn't live to see that. I'm going to bless all peoples of the earth through you and your descendants, Abraham. Abraham didn't live to see that. And so these, these men and women, great saints of great faith, and yet things didn't really go all that well for them. Some of them were well off. Abraham was pretty well off. But he was rejected. He was lived as an alien, as a stranger in places. He was in danger in places. And the, the writer is looking at people like you and me and say, look back to these folks and, and be reminded of how they ran the race. Learn from them. And then he continues, verses 1 and 2, basically saying, and then run like them run like them. He says in verse 1, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin 
that so easily trips us up. Now, some of you people like to run. I, for the life of me, I have not figured out why that is yet. Um, when I was younger and could run, uh, I liked to run for things like uh, basketball. Chase run down a basketball or, or um, uh, in a volleyball game, something like that. But, I mean, some of you put on sneakers and you go out on the roads or you go out on the, on the track uh, at, at the local school and you run, like, for no reason. I... And, like, and, and if somebody would stop you and say, where are you going? You're like, to the end of this circle? And, and what's there? Well, the beginning of the next circle that I'm going to run. And you say, well, why are you doing this? And, and you can't really explain it. I've asked already. Like, what, why are you doing this? Sometimes people give weird excuses like, this is exercise. I don't understand that. I do know this, that if you're going to be a runner, you, you, you're, going to, you're, going to, you're going to strip down to the lightest weight gear possible, right? You don't go out there in a set of coveralls. You don't go out with a motorcycle helmet on your head. You don't wear work, steel-toe work boots when you run. You, you get the lightest sneakers you can get. You get these uh, little sh- flimsy shorts and a little thin top that lets the wind blow by you, and, and you, you run, and and get whatever satisfaction you can get out of that. But you do that because you know that if you're going to enjoy the run, if you're not going to get uh, tired quickly, you need, to, you need to run as lightweight as possible. This is kind of gross, but part of the thing that the writer here was thinking about was the Greek Olympians. Because when they ran, they ran with nothing on. Why? You can run faster if you have no impediments. Strip off every weight that slows us down, and then he elaborates, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And we think of sins. We think, oh, things like lying, lust, anger, envy. Remember we talked the first Sunday? In those sin lists, how regularly the word greed appears in them. You go to Ephesians, you go to Colossians, you go to a lot of Paul's epistles that have a sin list in 1 Corinthians, you'll find greed in the center of it. And is it possible for us as American Christians in the 21st century that this might be one of the key albatrosses around our neck when we try to run an efficient race And we don't even realize it again because as we've been saying, everybody living around us, everybody sitting around us on a Sunday morning like this enjoys the same kinds of things we do. How could it be a problem? And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. How do we do this? Verse 2. By keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. He's the one who started your faith. He's the one who's going to finish um, your faith. He's, he did this on his own. We'll look at him as our example. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in place of honor beside God's throne. Again, because we're looking at this through the lens of our topic, 
And think about Jesus willing to go through all he went through because of what lay ahead. And I wonder how much Jesus would look at somebody like me and see all that I enjoy and all the resources that I have and say, Keith, are you, are you real, have you really stripped down to where you can run an efficient, effective race? Or at least have you stripped down to the degree that I want you to strip down? That really is ultimately the question, isn't it? Are you and am I running the race with the gear that God wants me to have? Or am I still hampered by a gear that I shouldn't be wearing? That God wants, us, wants me to take off this and this yet so that the race that I'm running is far more efficient than it currently is. What has God been saying to you in these weeks? Is he, is he pushing you to say, Keith, I have blessed you with all of this, and you're giving me this, but you know, you could give me this, and you'd still have enough for you. In fact, is it possible that the this that's still over in your, in le- your ledger is not only hindering my work, but it's hindering your freedom? Because you love it, and you depend on it, Really, more than you're depending on Jesus. Now, look at what Jesus went through on our behalf. Remember that verse we read last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 8? It says that he became poor for our sakes. Though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes so that we could become rich in him. And he didn't mean a big 401k. He didn't mean his huge investment portfolio. He didn't mean his big house. He didn't mean all of these cars. He meant that you and I could become spiritually rich. And maybe it is that those of us who are spiritually rich don't need to be as materially rich as our unbelieving counterparts. So what I want to do for the rest of the time this morning is, is just throw out a few possible things that God might want to say to you. And I, I get it when I talk about a subject, subject like this, I get it that there is an in, inherent pushback. And so if, if you are convinced that God's not saying any of this to you, great. I would just encourage you, don't assume that he's not. So I'm going to give you a number of suggestions for what I call recalculating. On the one hand, scaling back for Jesus, and on the other hand, scaling up for Jesus. What does God want you to do maybe less of and maybe what he wants you to do more of? Um, One of the things that, you remember the story I told the other week about the foosball table? 
And by the way, thank you to all of you who sent me ads for used foosball tables. I didn't get a one for a brand new one, though. They were all used, and most of them required repair. Most of them were in worse shape than the ones one I already have. But as I shared that story with you, uh, uh, and for those of you who weren't here, I'll just tell you what it is. On uh, New Year's Eve, we were at uh, Pastor Charlie and Liz's house, and um, we played foosball. And uh, Charlie's is falling down a little bit, needs some repair work. And I just mentioned, I said, I, you know, I, I have in mind, I want to get a new foosball table. I've been researching it for probably seven years. Our current one is 20 years old. It was used when I bought it. And... Um, and so I said, you know, I know what I want to get. I want to get a tournament model. And, and uh, Betty very quietly, very subtly goes, we don't need a new foosball table. And that was the trigger that God used in my mind to start wrestling. That was the first Sunday on greed, preaching greed, to start wrestling with, wow, I knew that already. But I never figured that that should be a deterrent. Does that make sense? I already knew I didn't need it, but it didn't dawn on me that that should be, might be a deterrent for me. That I, shouldn't, I maybe shouldn't get another one. And I, st- <coughs> I started praying about it, which was a big mistake. Um, I don't think I'm going to be able to get that foosball table. But what I've been pondering in the weeks since is... is, is um, all of the things that I buy that I don't need and asking myself the question, do I even bother to check with God whether or not I should get that? Or do I assume that if I have the money, it's okay to get it, that God's okay with me? And I, I, I came to this conclusion, no, I live like, uh, unless it's a massive purchase, but I live like if I have the money, I can go ahead and buy it. So my first suggestion to you is consult God on non-essential purchases. All of them. If you don't have anything to do this afternoon, there's no football games on, guys. Read chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. Chapter 18 describes the fall of Babylon. Not really sure geographically where that is, but it is the political empire of the Antichrist. There are three times in that chapter that it, speak, it uses the word luxuries. And actually the entire chapter is all about the wealth of this empire. I mean the specifics. It talks about the gold and the silver. It talks about the clothing and the, it talks about grain and it talks about slaves and on and on and on and on. And you cannot read that chapter without coming to the conclusion at the end of it that God is frowning as he's looking on Babylon and not just because Babylon had washed its hands of God. It's impossible to read that chapter without being stung as an American who's well off. Every time I read that chapter, I go, I gulp, and I want to get through to the end of Revelation so I can go on to something, something else. Revelation chapter 18. So, first suggestion, 
consult with God on all non-essential purchases. And by the way, if you're saying, well, what's God going to do? I I believe that when we come to God in serious, um, we're uh, we're really wanting his guidance on something that God will take us seriously. And no, he's probably not going to speak to you audibly. He doesn't do that to me. And I've shared before, I've probably never been more than 80% sure of something as I've sought God about uh, wisdom on a matter. Probably never been 80%, more than 80% sure that this was God's will. And, I, and sometimes I've, it turns out I've been right. Sometimes it turns out I've been wrong. God loves when we act in faith. You determine the best you can. You go through to prayer. You listen through the word. You listen to other people. You're, you're just attuned to trying to be attuned to what God's saying back to you. You might get a, a response that night. You might be, get a response three weeks from now. You're like, well, I, I want to make a decision before three weeks. Do you really need to? Or are you seriously seeking God's advice? Are you seriously seeking God's direction leading in that? This is scaling back. I'm talking about scaling back now for Jesus. Uh, this one's going to get me in trouble, especially with some women. Less gift, less gift giving. Less gift giving. Now, I've had conversations with my wife and other people because gifts just don't do much for me. Um, they just don't do much for me. So, you know, I tell my kids, don't get me a gift. You know, Christmas birthday don't give me a gift give me a card that's great and honey make sure you bake a cake for me that means a lot but I don't need gifts and so I understand that for some people this is a way of expressing your love language and so I'm not saying don't give gifts but really you think about the money that sometimes we spend especially in family members Christmas and other special events could God use some of that money better in some other capacities and maybe in the process we end up teaching our kids some things about what really matters in life some things that don't matter quite as much there's something to think about maybe cutting back on gift giving and i've shared shared before it seems like these days you know when i was a kid um gifts were a big deal you didn't you you know, mom and dad didn't buy me toys and so forth. And so at Christmas or birthday, it was a big deal to get something special like that. And you were just grateful to get something. And today, it doesn't quite work like that, does it? It's like we give a gift to somebody, and it's like, it's not the right brand. It's not the right color. It's not my style. And we have to always include the return slip because we know there's a chance that they're going to take that back. And I, I don't know how that, to me, that just doesn't seem to have the spirit of gift giving. So maybe... Maybe we should just each buy our own things and put aside some of that money for scaling up for Jesus. But just practical suggestion, again, between you and God. Third suggestion, just having less stuff. Having less stuff. And there's two ways this could happen. One, we can go through our attics, our cellars, our garages, and clean out everything we haven't used in five years, assuming we're not going to use it again. And have a garage sale. How many love garage sales? Yeah, not too many of you. Maybe we could do a church-wide garage sale and get rid of some of that stuff. I think part of the problem is 
you only have about 14 items and they're only going to net you about six dollars and four cents it's like why go to all that trouble but maybe you can go together with other people and you know generate some money selling that stuff and and then just instead of putting it in your bank account give it to a neighbor that's been getting chemo treatments and can't work a lot or somebody you know that needs some money or give it to your kids to put in a children's offering in Sunday school or send it to one of our missionaries out there the other side of the coin is just not buying so much stuff remember last week we talked about loaning our things out remember that say amen I, you know, this is, this is an idea I've had for about 30 years. If all of us as Christians just shared our stuff better, we wouldn't need to buy so many things. I mean, seriously. We, we've, got a, we've got a couple of snowblowers on our street, and we have a guy that has a tractor. And the rest of us don't have snowblowers because of those 11 houses we, we have, and especially the guy with the tractor, he takes care of us. What a wonderful gift. He has the resource, and he takes care of us, so the rest of us don't have to go out and drop six to 1,200 bucks on a snowblower. You think about the things that you have that you don't use constantly. Wouldn't it be awesome if in the church we could just share our stuff with one another in such a way that we wouldn't all have to spring for it and again it frees up more resources? That'd be awesome. Wouldn't that be awesome? Even if you just have a couple of friends you do you do that with. I, I have a, a utility trailer. It's it's pretty much there available for anybody who wants to use it. So there, there's an FYI. Five by eight works well. Uh, my rationale is it might sit there for three weeks before I use it again. Why not have somebody else be able to use it during that time? I have a pop-up camper, and I let most anybody use it. There you go. Call me up. Um, but if we, had, if we would share our stuff, it would free up more resources that we wouldn't have to duplicate what everybody else does. Less stuff. So these are some ways to scale back for Jesus. This is the last one. Less debt. Mm. Now that's connected with probably all of these. Less debt. I wait to buy until I have the money so I have less debt. And then pay off my debt as soon as possible. Pay off my debt as soon as possible. The world tells us that debt is normal. The Bible doesn't. The world tells us that we should live in debt. I remember talking with a friend one time because I was working hard and trying to pay off our house early. And he could not understand that because, after all, my mortgage was at a smaller percentage than what I could have gained by investing that money. And I understood that. I understood the mathematics. But as I look at the Scripture, and this, is what, this was my answer to him, as I look at the Scripture, I don't see any applause anywhere for debt. I see rather that that's something to get out from under. And part of the reason for that is so I have more resources available for scaling up for Jesus. Paying, paying off debt as soon as possible and just incurring less debt. Waiting longer so I can save the money to buy something. All right. How to have more to share. So now it's thinking about how to scale up for, for Jesus. How to have more to share. 
One, keeping our possessions longer. I was just thinking this week, I was looking at my refrigerator and uh, remembered that they say statistically every refrigerator has a a 10-year life these days. I'm like, man, what happened to the refrigerators that my parents had like the last 30 years, you know? They were ugly, but they last 30 years. 10 years. So our, our refrigerator we have is 15 years old, and I'm like, praise God. It's really no beauty queen, but it works well. Haven't had to spend too much money on it. And, and if I get 20 years out of it instead of 10, so, you know, a refrigerator costs anywhere from 1200 to $3,000, something like that, $4,000. So if instead of buying a $1,500 um, every 10 years, buying a $1,500 refrigerator. So in 40 years, I've spent, what's that, $6,000? Um, if I can get this one to last 10, 20 years and the next one to last 20 years, I'll be dead by then, but if I can do that mathematically, I can spend maybe $3,000 plus $1,000 worth of repairs. All of a sudden, I've got $2,000 more to work with over that time. If you do that with a variety of things, scaling up for Jesus, more resources for him at his disposal. Uh, another thing that we can do just practically is to buy the second the best product. <laughs> Some of you like to buy the very best thing. Some people like to buy the cheapest thing. And I always say, well, if you're a good mechanic and you know how to fix things, maybe that's okay. But for most of us, that's a problem because we buy the cheapest thing, then we always have to pay to fix it. But maybe instead of buying the most expensive or the best thing, we buy the second to best or the third to best. Scaling up for Jesus. And then the third, op- third option, <clears throat> we talked about lifestyle creep last week. Keeping the same li- lifestyle you have now, even after you get a raise, or if there's more money available, you're an empty nest or something like that. Keeping the same lifestyle you have now. So that instead of moving up with a, a month increase in salary. You keep the lifestyle, scaling up for Jesus. A couple final suggestions. What to do with the increase you do have. Say you have a raise or something like that. What are you going to invest in? God's work, God's global mission. Come tonight, hear about why that really matters. Remember we said last week that that Jesus is not going to come back until all the people groups of the world have heard the gospel. That means we have a lot of work ahead of us yet. A lot of work ahead of us. Because there's still, depending on how you count them, there's still somewhere between 4,300 and 7,000 people groups who have no witness in their culture to the good news of Jesus Christ. You're going to see a map tonight that probably going to blow you away when you think about the impact of the gospel and where it has not impacted yet. So there's, those are some obvious ways to help in God's work, help in God's global mission, as well as we talked last Sunday, the, just to helping other people in need and keeping your ear to the ground. Just find out where some needs are. You write somebody a, a check or you give it anonymously through somebody else, through carrier, and get it to somebody in need. By the way, I'd encourage you to do that to the degree you can. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 6 about how important it is not to go out, broadcast our giving, and say, look what I've done. You can give it anonymously if you can, but don't let that stop you from giving. I do that when I can through intermediaries, but if the need is great, the need is urgent, write out a check and give it to the person individually. It's 
not about you. It's about them and it's about your Lord. Before I close, I want to say a word to you parents. I suspect that this is one of the greatest areas of challenge for us as Christian parents, and that is what we're trying to convey to our kids about what really matters in life and who matters. And a whole lot more is caught in this area of money and stuff than is taught. In other words, as our kids watch what we spend money on and how much we spend and how much we buy them, how indulgent we are with them, there are certain conclusions that they draw. You don't have to say a word teaching them. They're going to catch it. They're going to look at how you live, how they live compared to their peers. They're going to see the money that you give and the money you spend on self. And they're going to draw certain conclusions based on that. We, we complain about this millennial generation feeling entitled. Where do you think that came from? We want to bless our kids. We want to give them gifts. We, we love them. But sometimes the greatest gift to give them is not money and not the things that money can buy. I, th- I shared this with you before, uh, I think. But about a year and a half ago, I sat down with our kids, and all of whom are now in their 30s and have families of their own. And I asked them the question. I said, all right, now that college is in the rearview mirror, looking back, because we, we didn't pay for any of our kids' college, and we had told them that when they were in junior high school already, we're not going to be able to help you. We were in a couldn't help, not a wouldn't help situation. We're not going to be able to, to help you with college. We're going to try to help you be able to save some money while you're in high school for college. We'll try to take care of some other things. But you're really on your own in college. And looking back, I asked those three kids, I said, now looking back, do you think that was a good thing or a bad thing? And every one of them said it's a good thing. And some of you have seen this, perhaps even in your own kids, where you put them through college, and what do they do? Year, freshman year, sophomore year, it's party hardy time. Why? No personal investment. It's easy. Mom and dad paying my freight. I'm not saying you shouldn't pay for your kids for college. I'm just saying we should think seriously about what messages we want to convey to our children about money and the things that money can buy. And I'm not convinced that giving them everything we can is the best route. This is what I typically would tell engaged couples when we do premarital counseling. As as God blesses you with children, don't give them everything you can afford to give them. It's not in their best interests. Because God desires that these children that he has entrusted you with, he desires that they grow up to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And sometimes it's really hard to do that if you have to first peel their fingers away from this clutch hold on things and money. Now, you might be saying, I'm not sure I can change. I'm not even sure I want to change. If God's been speaking to you about something, and 
you and I can't. I mean, we are immersed in a culture that that shapes us and shapes us rigidly. On our own, we can't. But if you know Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and he is the voice and the power of God in your life and in my life. And everything and anything that he calls you to do, he can and will empower you to do. Philippians 2.13. He is the one who works in us to will, that is to have the desire, and to act according to his good purpose. You and I can't do hard things apart from his grace, but we can do impossible things by his grace. And my prayer for each of us is that as we kind of leave this topic in the rearview mirror when it comes to our sermon schedule, we'll not leave it in the rearview mirror in our lives. Because it is such an easy, ready substitute for our Savior. Because it so readily and easily provides us the security and the satisfaction that Jesus wants to provide us alone. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We really do. I think most of us would confess there are times when our affection can be skewed or substituted. We do love the things you've blessed us with. We love the financial independence you've provided us with. We are a people most blessed as we look at the world. But the Bible tells us again and again that you have given us everything that we have. And therefore, you have the right to tell us what you want us to do with it. We're just stewards. We're just managers. And so whether it's scaling back for you or scaling up for you, give us the kind of ears to hear you well and the kind of grace to respond to you well. That when it comes time for us to be notified that the end has come, there's no longing looking in the rearview mirror at the things we're going to let behind. There's no regret looking in the rearview mirror at what we're going to have to part with. It comes to stuff anyway. There's only the anticipation of seeing our Savior face to face. The one for whom the joy joy set before him endured the cross, scorning and shame, and now seated at your right hand in glory where he intercedes for people like us. Thanks for that. Thanks for his willing readiness to embrace poverty and leaving behind his riches 